Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru, and in this episode, my guest is Flora Raffi, the Chief Executive of Campsite, which is a Cambridgeshire-based charity that supports local people with visual impairments and blindness. Now, Flora is also one of the first graduates of the Master of Studies in Social Innovation, which is a course delivered by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. As a student searching for a research topic, Flora decided to focus her dissertation on the impact of UK charities charging their beneficiaries fees. Although the practice can bring in much-needed funds and pay overheads, many working in the third sector consider it controversial. I asked Flora to explain what it means both for the charities and for the end users. It's an interesting question and that's a lot of what the debate is around. I think from the one hand, yes, it does detract from the pure charitable organisation that's run by volunteers and is very organically grown and serves as many people as it can. On the other hand, Charities are really struggling to get money and to raise funds in today's climate. So asking, for example, for a contribution, it means the service can carry on. It can fill funding gaps and mean that more people can have access to it. So there's an element of it's still charitable because it's probably significantly less expensive than it would be to go to a for-profit area to get that same service. The boundaries between charity and companies not just in this area, but how they're organised as well, are really starting to blur. In terms of the the end user, the client, the person that Mm. comes along and says, you know, I need your help, is there a tiered system of payment, perhaps? So some charities do do that, and I think a lot of the times it's linked to the personal circumstances. So I think in many cases, again, the difference between a charitable organisation and potentially a for-profit one is if there's an urgent, desperate need, most charities will just waive the fee. If someone can't afford it, it doesn't matter. They need the help. That's what you're there to help. But again, it could be tiered. It could be how much of a core service user you are. So many charities have their main beneficiary, um, let's say someone who's living with a certain health condition or in a certain socioeconomic position, but then their family members or People of the wider public may also benefit, but not be the direct reason that charity exists. So some charities have started bringing in charges to signal, you know, we can help you, but you're partly a distraction from our main beneficiary, so there should be an associated cost for us to help you instead of them. It's, it, it's quite an unwieldy topic. So how did you go about making this something that was easier to understand, it was digestible, and actually had a concrete result at the end of it? I took a quantitative approach and tried to get an overarching understanding of the situation. Hopefully others will take this research forward and mine would serve as sort of a launch pad or a springboard for those more in-depth questions. And I'm really hoping someone does do more qualitative analysis of each charity situation and reaction. But my approach was a broad trying to understand the sort of five main areas in which A lot of these opinion pieces said that charging either damaged or improved charities, um, which were around sort of their mission focus, their staff relationships and um, sort of morale, their volunteer relationships and morale and their beneficiary relationships, as well as an overarching sense of the charity's quality. And 
what I did was I created markers for each of those categories and through a combination of analyzing the public annual accounts of charities which have a very lengthy trustee report associated with them and doing direct survey with different CEOs and senior managers of charities around the country, tried to pull that together and create this broad um, answer to the question. I don't think by any means it's answered, <laughs> and I completely agree. It's a very broad question. I hope more research is done into it. For your own purposes as a, as a researcher, as a student, what kind of answer do you, do you feel that you got from it, that actually this is good or that well, it's not good? It was the exact opposite of the answer I was hoping to get. <laughs> um, so I, I really wanted it to definitively you know, be either a good thing or a bad thing. And when I was doing my analysis of the data and it just kept coming back, no statistical significance of any of the markers, I was just sitting there going, how is this possible? How what does that mean? So my, the way I did the research is I was comparing charities that did charge and the charities that didn't charge and tried to show that there was some difference between them and through that answer the question of is this a good or bad thing to do. So if all the non-charging charities were getting amazing scores on all of my markers and the charging ones were getting bad and then clearly this is not a good thing to do and vice versa, you know, charging might be a wonderful thing to do. But what I was finding was there was no statistical difference between those two categories. So in any of the things, and I, I don't know how many hundreds of tests, <laughs> quantitative tests I did, nothing came back statistically significant. They were identical in all the ways I tried to control and test them. And it was a very frustrating thing because it felt like a non-result. But then, actually, in that effect, it means that if there is no difference, that shouldn't detract you from wanting to do it if it helps the charity deliver its services. So not many charities in the UK do this, I take it. So that's, that was actually one of the surprising things. The, so my sample size was local sight loss charities in the UK because they're geographically very well dispersed, their age, um, their income, their expenditure levels, all of that is quite nice range across, um, so quite representative of UK charities. And what I was most surprised to find that 50% of them did charge in some way. So it's not a insignificant proportion and that's why I think research needs to be done in this all the more because clearly a lot of people are doing it. And if we don't know what real effect it has, then that's quite worrying. And that actually uh, was a question I wanted to ask you. What is the effect of charging? Do you have any idea? Um, what seemed to... This I couldn't go into enough detail on. Um, so it's just there's a correlation, but it's not necessarily a um, causation. Was that the charities that charged, on average, did tend to have more income, um, more staff, more diverse sources of income as well, um, and more beneficiaries, interestingly. And that kind of led to one of the conclusions, which was when I controlled for everything, what seemed to have the most effect on all of my markers was being able to spend more on your cause. So the charities that spent more, regardless of whether or not they charged, had the highest scores in all of the categories. So it seems like if charging enables you to be able to have more money to then spend on your beneficiaries, that's really the difference. It doesn't matter if you charge to get that money, it's just the fact that you then spend it on the cause. How positively have other charities viewed this research? So I've thus far presented this research back to the sample group, um, who are all members of a membership organisation called Visionary. 
And it was very interesting to get their reactions. A lot of them, it seemed like there was just a sigh of relief that went through the room when I presented the research. And so several of them have come back and said, this has helped them go to their board to start this conversation. Because as senior managers and CEOs, they felt this is an avenue they should be exploring. But a lot of the trustees sort of ethically didn't want to go down it because they just assumed it would be a terrible thing. So I think it's starting conversations, um, which is the best possible outcome for research. Is there an ethical dilemma around this or, or, or a moral dilemma? Or is it that actually we're being quite short-sighted? So I do think this is part of a wider ethical conversation about the role of charity in society and charities have definitely evolved over the past few decades even. There used to be a very paternalistic relationship between charities and their beneficiaries and it created all kinds of quite problematic dependencies especially where the beneficiaries are humans of you know don't don't worry about a thing we'll do everything for you depend on us don't do anything for yourself and that was quite limiting and often the language charities used was quite damaging to their beneficiaries as well. So I think as charities evolved to being more empowering to be giving people the tools and skills and knowledge they need to make their lives better rather than depend on the charity to do it for them, that then brings in an interesting question about you know financial empowerment of if you do have the money available, there is an empowering sense of being able to spend it on betterment and, and having ownership over the service that you're receiving. So I don't have the answer. I think it is an interesting debate, and I think it is a debate that should be happening rather than people just quietly doing the charging, not really having the conversation, and you know, not sure where we end up. I think regulation and the charity sector as a whole should really be having this loudly and and have the public's view in it as well. So how successful could this form of fundraising be? So on average the charities that I researched that actually did charge only raised about two percent of their income from charging so it wasn't a significant um, you know cure-all for the lack of funding that's happening at the moment um, so in monetary terms that two percent was about 16,000 so it's not insignificant but that can't be the only source of income for the charity. I would like to talk to you Flora about what it was like to be a CEO of a charity and a part-time student on um, a, a, although it's a part-time course it, it is a pretty intense course isn't it? Yes it was it was definitely a challenge I think I was fortunate to have spoken to some other people who had done other part-time courses before who really stress that your, your self-discipline is the most important thing and that's the only way you're going to get through. So you need to find your rhythm and stick to it. So what I did personally was every evening, it didn't matter what day of the week it was, after work, Christmas Day, um, every day I did one hour of reading or writing or preparing for the Masters. And that actually was quite manageable to get through that way. But it had to be that absolute discipline of it didn't matter what everyone else was doing. Um, had to lock myself away and do it for an hour at least every day. And how has it motivated you to move forward as an individual, as a career woman? So the master's been very useful already in just giving me the confidence and knowledge to know how to 
be a good CEO and effectively run my organization. There's been so much that we've covered around you know, building teams and leading and generating new ideas that already I've been able to put into practice. And also it's been a real reassurance that things that I'm already doing that because I became a CEO quite early in life, I wasn't 100% sure that this was the best possible way to do it. It's been great feedback to know that actually this is what I'm doing well. These are the things that I could improve. Looking forward, I think partly just that discipline that I had to develop of having studying every evening, it's now made me realise how much time I actually have without the Masters. (laughs) And now I'm taking on different challenges. So since we finished, I've learned to drive. Um, My partner and I are partway through sort of exploring, setting up our own sort of business in our spare time. I'm reading a lot more. So it's just given me a lot more appreciation of the time I have and what I can achieve next to full-time work as well. But looking forward, I don't know where it could go. I think it's just the wonderful network that we've established and, and built with the fellow cohorts and within the cohort itself. So I think opportunities are boundless with this Masters. I'm very interested. What got you into wanting to work in charities in the first place? It's probably how I was raised of always giving back to community. Um, and while I was born in sort of just post-communist uh, Hungary and had parents that emigrated over and the exchange rate was not favourable, so we, we were definitely struggling the first few years of life. But having so much support and and building that and realising what a fortunate life I had to be able to have gone to where we did and how much effort my parents put in, that was always a motivation for me to try and give back to those people who didn't have as fortunate starts to life. And then the schools I went to also very heavily encouraged community support and volunteering and it just, whenever I thought about what I wanted to do, it was always helping people and the charity sector was the way I decided to go with it. That was Flora Raffi, who is the Chief Executive of Campsite. You can find out more about us by searching for the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn.